This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. At the end of fermentation, we are seeing about... 370 ppb but in the bright tank we're seeing over 500 again this week on the show creature comforts shares the troubleshooting process they use to hunt down and eliminate metallic off flavor and kettle sours hi my name is spencer Britton, and i'm a quality lab specialist with creature comforts brewing company in athens georgia spencer i guess uh to start off let's hear a little bit about the souring process at creature comforts give us an overview Sure. Um, it's kind of a fun process. We have to play musical vessels with our four-vessel brew house. So we have four vessels, like I said, um, a mash ton, louder ton, boil kettle, and whirlpool. And so for the first length of our kettle sour, assuming we're doing two or more, uh, we go through the mash and louder and then the first boil. And then after that, we move that first length back into the mash tun. Um, at this point, our second length has already gone through uh, into the louder tun. So we're kind of moving it around, and then that opens up the boil kettle for the second length to move in and get boiled, kill everything, make it nice and ready for our lacto. Our mash tun is also uh, quite capable of boiling, so that helps us out a lot. We then pitch lacto that we uh, keep reharvesting into the first length. And it sits in there, gets happy, keep it at 115 Fahrenheit, which is 46 Celsius. And it hangs out there for four to four and a half hours most weeks, depending on uh, the time it's been between brews. Our lacto is very happy to do it in four hours if it's been only a week since we've pitched it if it's been a couple weeks or more it'll take about eight hours instead all right and i think i heard um 
uh, may correct me if I'm wrong, but you've actually been repitching that same lactoculture for quite a few years. Yes. So I think it is probably the culture they even before the brewery was started that they were, you know, using on a pilot scale uh, to dial in the recipe. And so it's been six plus years now of that same culture, just getting pitched into the Athena wort, uh, harvested, pitched in the next one over and over and over again. And so we know actually what the original mix was. um, And we did a sequencing project last year and it came back as nothing close to either of those. Uh, (laughs) So that's fun. That's cool. Yeah. Have you noticed like a pretty uh, different, um, a pretty, the evolution of that flavor profile over the years or not so much? It's stayed pretty consistent. I feel like at least I've been, even when I was not working here, I was a fanboy in the area drinking the beer. Um, and while I was not as well versed in every little bit of how to taste beer, uh, it kind of feels like it's remained pretty steady. We did have kind of a adjustment period when we moved from our 30 barrel brew house to our 85 uh, when we moved it over to the bigger production facility the lacto was not super happy about that at first and so it was taking longer we had to actually you know top up with a little bit of lactic acid every now and then to meet our targets but after that it started rolling pretty nicely and it's been really consistent which is nice Sure. All right, cool. Well, let's get into uh, the topic at hand. Uh, you encountered an unpleasant off flavor. Talk about how and when this off flavor first presented itself. So we started encountering this problem when we moved from our smaller production facility to our new larger one. Uh, we kind of found that every now and then we were picking up some metallic flavor in the beer, uh, specifically the foam more than anything. This is only in your kettle sours. Yes, we didn't find it happening in other beers, any of our IPAs or Pilsners or anything like that. So it gave us a really like dialed in target to look at. Okay. Now, you made a list of potential sources of iron pickup. Walk us through that list and how you eliminated potential culprits from your list. Sure. So um, starting with raw materials, just your water hops grain, anything like that. Uh, We weren't seeing it in other things, all of which have some kind of overlap with what we use in our kettle sour. So that was not eliminated necessarily, but definitely not our focus to start off with. Furthermore, we were really interested in any time the beer is actually touching something. So that includes the cellar as well, uh, the yeast pitch itself, fermenters, bright tanks, cans and kegs. But again, since we weren't seeing it in other brands yet, our brew house is really the first target to look at all right and spencer i bet you probably want to get the subject of passivation out of the way like you did in your wbc presentation talk about your passivation process and also comment whether those protocols were already in place prior to noticing this off flavor or if they were in reaction to it sure so on installation the brew house gets hit with a 10 percent nitric acid wash for two hours uh, after that, it's getting hit with a full CIP at least weekly, which has that, which has a two percent nitric acid in it, which kind of refreshes that passivation. Um, this was the f- initial one was only done at the beginning. Uh, we never did a re- full passivation of the brew house after noticing because we were not convinced since we weren't seeing it in other brands and other brands were holding up their hops and stuff like that. Okay. That it probably wasn't coming from, um, leaching potentially in the brew house. 
But yeah, tanks, uh, fermenters and brights did the same thing. 10% nitric acid wash for two hours. Uh, they get lightly rinsed and allowed to interact with oxygen to build up that chromium oxide layer. And then they also see a CIP pretty constantly uh, that has the phosphoric nitric acid blend in it. Um, and then those are actually redone annually or anytime we have like welding work on the tank. All right. Makes sense. Um, and by the way, if you're listening and want more information on the subject of passivation, definitely check out episode 126 with Master Brewer's own Mythbusters, John Palmer and Ashton Lewis. Spencer, you've um, you'd previously sent off samples to outside labs for analysis, analysis of metal content. What did you find out there? So that started actually with us looking at some yeast issues. Uh, we were kind of trying to dial in our zinc dosage for yeast health. And we found that even when we had just dosed it at tank full, uh, everything should be homogenized and nice and where we wanted it. Uh, we were getting really low or variable zinc numbers back from our outsourced testing. So we reached out to some nearby people at UGA, which is the university near us. They have a isotope plasma lab, uh, which has a lot of food testing and that kind of thing, and sat down and talked with them a bit. And they gave us some better methods to collect those samples and identify that that was probably a sore spot uh, for what we were seeing in those variable results. Okay. We'll let folks um, refer to your uh, WBC presentation, which is available on demand for um, sort of the best practices of, of how to go about doing that sampling if they're interested in metal analysis, because like your presentation revealed that that um, sampling methodology ends up being pretty darn important um, for getting accurate numbers. But um, can you just tell us briefly what was wrong with your sampling method? Sure. Uh, we found that we were just using regular 50 mil conical tubes and other stuff to collect. And we found that if not using proper collection vessels, they can either leach uh, metals from or impart metals into your sample, just depending on you know how clean they are, what material they are. So we had to make some adjustments there. Once you got your sampling methodology on the up and up, what kind of numbers were you seeing? We're seeing kind of in the 400s to 600s, anywhere in there, for the most part of, uh, as far as parts per billion goes, of iron specifically. Uh, I've read that aluminum could be also a cause of this off flavor, but our aluminum was always below zero, even in cans that had sat warm for ages. So we were convinced that, you know, aluminum leaching isn't an issue in this uh, case. but that is about four to six times what the ASBC says the threshold for iron is. They list it as being 100 parts per billion. And I've seen anywhere from 50 to 2.7 parts per million even. Um, but we used 100 PPB kind of as our gold standard since that's what the ASBC recommends. It kind of makes sense for the numbers we were seeing. And that's what we wanted to work towards. Okay, so you were like four to six times uh, flavor threshold, um, so obviously pretty high there. Since your metallic all-flavor issues were only in kettle sours, you focused your troubleshooting on the souring process itself. Talk about some of the takeaways from that initial investigation. Sure. 
So at first, we kind of looked at anything we could think of in the souring process. Uh, that includes the wort going in, the lacto going in, the lacto taken out, anything in that area. Uh, we found that the lacto going in had pretty high uh, metal content, as did the wort starting off. Uh, but this is before Whirlpool and all that, so high is relative there. Um, and then so we also looked at the end of the sour right before we boil it a second time and then knock out. So the end of the sour, we saw kind of higher levels than we started out with, but the knockout was lower than anything else. So that kind of showed us that the Whirlpool is getting rid of some of that, but not enough to get below detection. Coming up. In the beers, we're seeing four to 600 ppb. In that yeast sample, we're seeing 4,600 ppb, uh, so 4.6 ppm instead, even. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they have created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation live streams data from your active fermentations, allowing you to remotely track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Try it free for 30 days. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. There's one last sponsor I should mention, and that's More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. And if you like this show, be sure to thank all of our sponsors, because it wouldn't be possible without their generous support. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Our friend Gabriel Dominguez from episode 186 joins Sierra Nevada's Ken Grossman and others for a collaborative webinar put on by Master Brewers, ASBC, and the BA. The topic is Brewing CO2, a supercritical ingredient, utility, and byproduct. Gabriel's not going to like that title. You can register now for the December 3rd webinar via a link in the show notes. District Northern Illinois is your host for a Zoom presentation December 3rd. The topic is variation in sensory impact of Britannomyces strains from different origins, presented by Chris Curtin. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. 
Master Brewers Association of the Americas offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Keep current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers today. Use discount code BEER20 to save 20% on dues, now through December 31st, 2020. Master Brewers, United We Brew. Back to the show. So you saw s- some increases um, during souring itself, but then you saw a big decrease um, in after the whirlpool. Was that? Um, did you see that decrease? Uh, did you look at that in other brands too, or did you see that decrease only in the? in the sour beers we did look at other brands actually our ipa uh we did one before the whirlpool uh got five um x so 500 ppb uh iron but after whirlpool into the knockout and tank full on multiple batches it was always below detection um showing us that kind of a more aggressive whirlpool since we were doing a more aggressive one for an ipa with a bunch of hop and troub and stuff um is actually knocking out a lot of that iron in the rest of the brews. Okay. And you also saw iron decrease during fermentation, right? Yes. So we'd find that by day two or three, just depending on the brew, uh, that Berliner wort would be below detection all of a sudden. You could watch it kind of decrease until it hit that point. So that kind of focused us more towards the fermentation process of looking at, okay, well, if we're getting below detection, but in the final product, we're back into, you know, five to six X. How is that happening? Okay, cool. Spencer, where were you seeing the highest iron levels in your process at this point? So at this point, the highest iron levels were in the lacto kegs. We went to go pitch them. We would take samples. And this is after sitting in a keg for about a week um, in an anaerobic environment in the walk-in cooler. And we were finding a pretty big increase from about 500 ppb on the harvest sample to 900 in the actual uh, pitch or yeah, pitch sample. Wow, it's a pretty big increase. Yeah, we identified that as a pretty big source of leaching from the kegs. Um, this was done with specifically newly passivated kegs, as well as ones that had not been in a long, long time. And both of them increased the same amount, essentially. Okay, interesting. So uh, you ended up with the hypothesis that your yeast was taking up iron while healthy, then releasing iron later on in your process. Tell us how you got there. Sure. So we would see that drop to below detection on day two or three, uh, but then a slow and steady creep up after that. Uh, Kind of like you might with off flavors in some beers, we figured something sitting at the bottom of the tank was probably contributing that back into the beer. And so we identified yeast as being really the only thing that should be sitting there. Um, So we grabbed a sample off the bottom of the tank of our yeast and ran it. 
In your presentation, you also mentioned that you were seeing big increases from the fermenter to the bright tank. Talk about that. So, yeah, that gave us another idea that it might be the yeast. At the end of fermentation, we are seeing about, in this case, 370 ppb. But in the bright tank, we are seeing over 500 again. So we started thinking about, okay, well, in the centrifugation process, you're whipping those yeast around. A lot of them are going to just break in that process and are probably releasing that iron that we were worried about back into the beer. You made some changes to your yeast dropping schedule, which had a positive impact and led to a permanent process change. Talk about that. Sure. So we've always done an early day two troop drop just to get anything you know, out of the bottom of the tank, any detritus there. But since we thought, okay, well, it seems like on day three, our iron levels are below detection and we think it's in yeast. What if we just drop all the yeast that we can find out of the beer on day three? So we started adding in a really aggressive drop um, in order to get all of that out and hopefully stop it from re-releasing iron back into the beer. Is there much yeast to drop on day three? You must be uh, using a very flocculent yeast strain or have a extremely rapid fermentation if you're getting significant settling that soon. Yeah, it's a bit of both. Our fermentation's pretty quick uh, in that brand, especially, and our yeast is highly flocculent. Okay, that um, makes sense. Yeah, got it. So, Spencer, um, next you took an even closer look at iron content at each step in the process of your Berliner Weisse. What were some um, interesting takeaways there? Yeah, so. This time we did the entire process from very start to the very finish. Um, some of the takeaways there were early on, at least, uh, the lacto, like we said, seems to be taking up some iron during storage in the keg. And also our brew house passivation seems to be satisfactory because we were seeing just fluctuating numbers. We weren't seeing a constant increase in the uh, tanks while it soured for a few hours. We also found that our true drops didn't really have too much iron in them. They had a bit, so that's nice to get rid of, but nothing impressive. Um, but then when we finally got a yeast sample collected and sent off, we found that it had just an absurd amount of iron in it. Uh, so we're talking in the beers, we were seeing four to 600 ppb uh, total. In that yeast sample, we were seeing 4,600 ppb, uh, so 4.6 ppm instead even, uh, which even at the highest rates that I've seen is, you know, 2x, basically, the flavor threshold at least. But we yeah. were considering it as about 46x. Yeah, that's off the charts. And so what you're talking about is the, the yeast samples that you got from that that. Um, day three drop that you added to your process, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So um, I'm curious, how does that number compare to a similar yeast drop on your IPA or on any other clean beers? I don't know if we have those numbers actually for other clean beers on the yeast drop. Okay. Um, no worries. That'd be a cool piece of data to see though. Just yeah. Like, you know, is it, um, you know, does your IPA yeast on a, if on a day three drop have, you know, a quarter of that, the same amount, what, you know? Right. Yeah, definitely. Because I guess we didn't ever look at that with the other brands since we were seeing below detection by the time we got to knockout. Right. Um, Fair enough. Which hopefully at that point, just it would be hops introducing. But yeah. yeah, that would be cool to take a look at and see if. 
Okay. Um, talk more about the increases and decreases that you're still observing from the fermenter all the way to the aged can. Sure. So early on, we had done some can testing, like I said, to make sure that our aluminum content wasn't a thing to worry about. So we had some numbers from cans, from bright tanks and from cans over the course of 10 weeks. And we found that in the bright tank to the can, we saw kind of a drop in iron, actually. And then over time, we would see an increase in iron, which was strange to us. Uh, but after going through this process and learning about the yeast and taking into account that our Berliner Weiss isn't spun perfectly clear, uh, there's probably some yeast floating around in there. And we believe that in the bright tank, they kind of settle out, which is why you see a decrease going into the can. And then in the cans themselves, over time, they're either dying off or just releasing when they're done with iron. And it's kind of raising that concentration over time. All right. I'm just curious, did you look into any other um, options besides kegs for storing the, for, the, for the culture storage, since obviously it was pretty clear you were leaching a lot in that process? That is one of our to-dos right now. Uh, we've been doing it that way for a long time, which doesn't make it good, but it makes it <laughs> so that we've designed processes for it specifically. Yeah. And especially right now, just having limited manpower as we try to keep kind of distanced and that kind of thing uh we've not looked into it yet also finding such good results from just dropping the yeast has made it so we haven't needed to worry about it yet but obviously when we can that would be a major boon in dropping those numbers even lower sounds good during the q a session that followed your wbc presentation john palmer had a pretty interesting observation in regards to the ultimate cause of this issue instead of giving that away here i'll suggest that folks go watch your wbc presentation on demand which is a great resource that includes lots of data as well as some important details regarding that major sampling watched out we mentioned earlier as always we'll add some links to the show notes Spencer, one last question for you. Back on episode 40, we heard about how tannic acid can bind with and crash out free metal ions like iron to inhibit Fenton reactions. Have you done any trials with tannic acid yet? I don't believe we have right now. Um, I guess the concern there might be that it would take yeast down with it and make it a little more clear, but that might be something worth looking into. <laughs> That was Spencer Britton here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you're brewing kettle sours and want more details, check out Spencer's 2020 World Brewing Congress presentation. Look for a link in the show notes. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use the promo code BEER20 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues if you register before the end of the year. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, 
BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Oh,